You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Pushkin. Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor Claire Foy. You likely first learned of Foy's work through her portrayal of Queen Elizabeth II in the first two seasons of The Crown, for which she won an Emmy. In the five years since her TV hit, she's appeared in films like Steven Soderbergh's Unsane and Damien Chazelle's First Man, where she played Janet Sharon, wife of famed astronaut Neil Armstrong. Her latest performance comes in the new movie Women Talking, written and directed by Sarah Polly. Inspired by real-life events, it tells the story of eight women in an isolated Mennonite colony who discover that the men in their community have been surreptitiously drugging and abusing them for years. With their faith shaken and reality shattered, the women begin deliberating over their response to this brutality. Here's a clip from the trailer. Why does love, the absence of love, the end of love, the need for love, result in so much violence? It was all waiting to happen before it happened. You could look back and follow the breadcrumbs along the path that led to violence. 
When we looked back, it had been everywhere. It is a part of our faith to forgive. We will be forced to leave the colonies if we do not forgive these men. None of you will listen to reason. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and terrified. Hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. That was from the film Women Talking, now out in theaters across the country. It stars actors Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, and of course our guest today, Claire Foy, whose performance in the film has a kind of ferocity that stays with you. It's actually why I wanted to have her on the show. The film is full of tremendous talents, but it's Foy's work as Salome, a deeply protective mother that especially cuts deep. It's a combustible turn for Foy, who oscillates back and forth between untamable rage and unrelenting despair. Foy, to her credit, captures both ends of that spectrum, leaving the audience to wrestle with the gulf between them. We discuss the intricacies of her performance throughout our conversation today. We also chart her course from childhood to college to the crown, and how she hopes women talking is the beginning of a new chapter. But before we begin, a quick disclaimer. Given the film's subject matter, there's some reference to sexual assault. As always, we've included time codes in the description of this episode, should you want to skip ahead of the women talking section. If you happen to not be listening to this on your phone, you can still see the description in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com. And so with that, welcome back to the show. Happy 2023. And I hope you enjoyed this talk with the very talented Claire Foy. Claire Foy. Yes. Pleasure to meet you. And you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I've been up since two o'clock this morning, jet lagged. So I'm awake. That's the one qualification we also have here on the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm awake. The guest has to be awake. Okay. Um, you have this excellent new film that's out called Women Talking. And I thought we'd just dive into it. To set the scene, the film takes place in an isolated religious colony where the women learn that several men in the community have been drugging and abusing them for years. For your part, you play Salome, a protective mother who learns that one of the men has attacked her four-year-old daughter. In the aftermath of that attack, the men then leave the community for two days, during which time the women are told they are to forgive them. Now, as I understand it, it was only when you landed the role that you realized the responsibility you'd been given in it. You said, I was slightly afraid because I didn't know where it was going to take me. Yeah. Where did this film take you? I think I learned so much. I was constantly surprised by myself, I think. I had a lot of trust in the process, I think, because I trusted so much the people who were making it and the other actors around me. 
there was a lot of things I suddenly realized I had to sort of go in blind really with a lot of stuff, which is not normally my approach. But as I get older and I do it more, it's actually starting to be more of my approach, really. What do you think that approach is? I will always, for me anyway, always have to do a lot of preparation just because I think it's sort of part of making myself feel comfortable. Like improvising always scares the living daylights out of me. I sort of enjoy it. But I enjoy it with a framework of knowing where I should be going, what right. what my who my character is. I don't like just I will always prepare a lot, but I think that you have to leave room to let the light in a bit. You have to leave room for to be surprised. The most exciting performances are the performances that have life in them and, and a sense of, I don't know, like that you don't entirely know what's gonna happen next. And I think that's what's always made me quite fearful. But I think as I'm getting older, I think I'm like, come on just got to let it go. What did that look like? <laughs> Probably not very good to lots of people. Um, I don't know. I really, I surprised myself with how much I could do. When we first started shooting it, we hadn't quite as a group. I think Sarah had figured out how to shoot it technically. And I don't think as actors, we fed back to her and the rest of the crew how this was going to be able to be performed at that pitch for that amount of time. The first opening kind of scene, which I sort of have a semi-monologue in it, it's very high energy, it's very engaged mm -hmm. the whole time. We did 120 times over about two days, two and a half days. I surprised myself in the sense that I was like, I got through it. Just I just plowed on. In that scene, you say, I can't forgive the men. Mm. I won't do it. You then proceed, I think, to kick a bucket over. Oh, the bucket. The bucket. I had to have a special toe thing made. I was, <laughs> I was originally <laughs> I mean, adamant that I wasn't. I was like, I'm just going to kick the bucket. It's fine. Didn't mm -hmm. kick the bucket three times. Not going to be good for like the 70th take. Let alone the 120th yeah, take. Yeah, I know. That was my own stupid. Well, then, then we mind it. But they made me like a special thing to put in my sock. Because obviously you were wearing sandals. The lovely combo of socks and sandals. So Yeah, I noticed yeah. you were wearing that today, actually. Yeah, so I can feel like I'm back there. And that's a place you want to live in Oh yeah, permanently. Mm, it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make light of something that is uh, really not worth making light of. But much of the film unfolds in that hayloft where that scene takes place, where the women must decide whether to stay and fight the men or leave the colony outright. But at the heart of that deliberation is really weighing the men's capacity to change with the women's capacity to forgive. How are you thinking about that conversation in creating this character? I think it's interesting with Salome, what I found interesting when we were shooting it is a lot of those conversations she is not part of because she's just not hearing it. So all of the women have come to terms and understood what has happened to them. And she has had to, as so many women have in the community as well, the penny has dropped that what has been experienced by her four-year-old daughter is not illness. She's been also raped while she was asleep in the same house as herself and her husband and their other children. I don't think that Salome has the capacity, nor necessarily should she, about having a nuanced argument about that. I think that other characters, Ona, for example, here, who is the most educated of the women and also the most spiritually open to all different avenues which this kind of conversation takes them down, she's able to live in that world. I just don't think Salome is at all. And so it was interesting when we were shooting it that 
I would hear those arguments made for the first time as the character, and then obviously, you know, 100 takes in, or, you know, maybe 50, I start hearing it as a person. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, God, that's really interesting. And that's what the, the film basically is, is watching these women change in, in real time. But I think the concept of if the men can change is also linked to her because she has a son mm. who's at a particular on the cusp of sort of teenagedom and therefore man, manhood. And it matters greatly to her that her son is not going to become like these men in the community. And that doesn't just mean the rapists. It means the men in the community who've been engaged in manipulating the power to keep the women down and put them in this position in the first place. And I think she's quite afraid about whether that is possible for her son because he's so far down the line, I think. Well, why don't we watch a clip from the film Okay. in which your character wrestles with all the things we're talking about? Can you do that on a podcast? People are going to listen to it. Oh, okay. Oh, God. This is a clip from Women Talking, written and directed by Sarah Polly. What if the men who are in prison are not guilty? Mother. Oh, oh, child. Why are you asking if Dude, shush. We caught one of them. Ah! I saw him. But only one. Yes, only one, but he named the others. But what if he was lying? We must consider this. No. No, that is not our responsibility because we aren't in charge of whether or not they are punished. We know that we've been attacked by men, not by ghosts or Satan, as we were led to believe for so long. We know that we've not imagined these attacks, that we were made unconscious with cow tranquilizer. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and terrified and insane, and some of us are dead. We know that we must protect our children regardless of who is guilty. In many ways, Salome is the lightning rod of the community, the woman who most wants to stay and fight the men at all mm. costs. When it came to this character, you said there was an ease in which I was able to connect with her that is very rare. I found her the quickest to connect with of any character I've played before. Why do you think that was? There's a shortcut, basically. Having a book to read is obviously always a real gift, basically, when you're working on anything because it gives you this like the closest source material to what the writer was thinking about who these people were that you're about to play and Salome in the book was just immediate she's a very immediate person she thinks and speaks at the same time and that's something that I think my family and my friends will probably say is the same as me I I'm very readable I think is the thing and then I think some people take that really personally then it's obviously nothing to do with them. It's my incapacity to be able to hide what I'm, what my my responses to things. And I'm quite a passionate person, and I don't argue very well. Like I'm a terrible arguer. Really? Yeah, really bad. I can get very passionate about things I know absolutely nothing about. But um, <laughs> if it's on the other side to someone's opposing side, opposing someone else, then I will go hell. Like I'll just keep going. I will die on that hill um, when I don't really want to. And I think that Salome, even though that's obviously not what's happening, she she is righteously angry. The thing that's compelling her to fight is her belief in what is, what is wrong. She sees, I think, as well, the very shaky ground that the power these men in the community have is based on. I don't think she believes it. I think she's got very strong faith 
And I think her capacity to have two sort of opposing things in her life, which is that she has faith and belief and love and tenderness and a huge heart. And she's also would rip someone's eyes out. Mm. I get it. Like the energy of her, I was just like, yeah, I get her. The way you got her mm. as an actor, as, as a person, I want to kind of understand where that maybe comes from. And to do that, I think we have to go back a little bit. Okay, where to? Is that the sound effect? That's the sound effect. Where are we going? We have been looking for a sound effect for the pivot back. The pivot back. (laughs) All we needed was one lovely jet-lagged actor to come in here and figure it out. And have no, absolutely no concept, have no filter, just to keep talking. Thank God for that. Um, That ability to connect to Salam, I wonder if it's informed by your time at Aylesbury High School in the mid-90s, because of that period, you said... I was really pissed off most of the time. I didn't really follow my instincts and instead did what I thought I was supposed to be doing. A lot of that anger came from not feeling like the person that you are is allowed to be out in the world. What person did you feel like you couldn't be at that time? I'll preface this by saying I don't think anybody when they're at like, school, teenager, feels particularly great about themselves. Oh, I was perfect. You, however, are notorious. I heard about you even in my high school, so that is saying something. Slow news day over there. <laughs> Constantly. It was very slow news day in the 90s. Everything was okay. Not anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, mid-90s, historically. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Like, you know, Tony Blair. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think anybody really gets it. I don't really think anybody really gets how to do life. Everything is very complicated, let alone the fact that your body is like on fire with hormones and yes. you were this sort of angelic, lovely thing and you've turned into this gross, smelly creature. That's about, the preface. Yeah, that's the. there's a very long preface, sorry. Um, I just think that I always felt that I couldn't have any belief in myself. And that doesn't mean to say that I had enormous amounts of belief in myself and it was hidden, but I just always felt like I was, I wasn't allowed to be confident. Why? Because that would be saying I believed in myself. And therefore, if I believed in myself, then I had to have a reason to. Mm. You can't just believe in yourself or, you know, back yourself as a person and think, I'm I'm okay, I'm a good person. But I just didn't believe that. You know, I just had had a childhood of being too loud too much. Youngest of three. Youngest of three. And what's funny about it, looking back, is I'm like, I don't think I was that bad. It could be how many instances, like 10 instances of someone saying that. And to a child, that it becomes your your belief system. And I found the being right really hard, like really, really hard. Um, I just couldn't get my head around how to do it. You said that you were not a wayward teenager. No. I didn't go off the rails and drink loads and, this is a word I will never say, and snog loads of boys. (laughs) And I was probably quite angry about that. Yeah. Do you not like the word snog? I like it from you. Okay, good. As long as you like it in general. I like it from you. Snog isn't really how, yeah, snog. Yeah, yeah, that's not going to be the title of this episode, I promise you. So what do you say in America? You you call it, no, not smooch. (laughs) If you're 105, um, make out. Make out. Make out. No, it's not much better. No, it's not much better. Let's give a snog. But but you as a teenager, finding yourself and trying to figure out who you are in the world, Mm. what did that person look like in high school? Just very confused. Very like, 
Um, I didn't look like I was supposed to look like, you know, I had arthritis, I had juvenile arthritis. I went to a grammar school in the UK, which is basically where you have to take a test to get in. I didn't actually pass it. So I got in basically because my brother and my sister are really clever. And my mum went to the council and said, please let her in. Otherwise, she'll get a complex. And I got a complex anyway, because I went and I just wasn't really clever enough to be there, basically. Um, I think that's the thing is that I didn't really have, and this is not a downer on my mother. My mother was wonderful and did the best. She was a single parent to three children. I think my mum was pretty lucky in the sense that I took the onus away from her in the sense that I just sort of got on with it, ignored it, buried it. I then had autoimmune conditions into my 20s. And I think that that has a lot to do with that, like not dealing with stuff and just, you know, getting on with things. It's just such a difficult time. And I think unless you have a support system that goes, it's really difficult. This is going to be really awful, like probably five years of your life. But we love you. We love who you are. I'm hoping. I mean, I have a child, so I'm terrified about teenager years. But I think hopefully if you have at home is a safe place where you feel like everybody knows who you are and they accept you for who you are, mm. then hopefully you can be able to get through it and you can therefore push your parents away be a nightmare but you know do things that kids you're supposed to get into trouble when you're a teenager you're supposed to do you're supposed to push things away and push the boundaries i pushed absolutely no boundary because i just one was terrified i just was terrified of death and two i just think i was i felt like everything was out of control my whole life so i just was trying to control everything and therefore make myself really good and felt out of control inside of you or, or your conditions at home both i think i think because my childhood was pretty chaotic i think inside me became pretty chaotic and therefore the only way to deal with that was to don't do anything bad don't do anything that would make that any worse if you know what i mean i do like just be good be afraid of everything everything was a risk everything so I just didn't do anything <laughs> but then very luckily I think because my actual nature is incredibly strong I think that that forced me to come to making decisions in my life weirdly I felt like I was on a skateboard and the skateboard was in control and that was the real me and the other me was on top of it and the skateboard mm. was going you're going to apply to go to this university you're going to go and do this so there was a real bravery and courage that I didn't identify with myself I was like what's happening Who's making these? Who's r right. running me? Um, and it was actually, you know, whoever I, you know, I actually was. <laughs> there is some peculiar silver lining to all of this because you say it's not great to be 18 and have no right eye. You're supposed to be launching yourself into the world going, here I come. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo. But it fundamentally changed me in the best way. Yeah. How did it do that? One of my aunties died of leukemia when I was about five. And I think I had from that day an absolute fear of illness and death. Yeah, it's just awful. I used to think that every member of my family was going to die. I used to stay awake at night thinking. I used to have like an encyclopedic knowledge at a very young age of all illnesses that I thought everyone was going to get. So when I was 18 and life was, well, I was seven, yeah, eight, yeah, on the cusp of kind of basically it was done my final exams, leaving school and find out I have a tumour in my eye. I think one of the th good things about it was the vanity aspect. I think I was a teenage girl, so I was obsessed with like changing my appearance. I was obsessed with like straightening my hair and trying to look as pretty as humanly possible and putting makeup on and stuff like that. And then I was basically forced into a place where I was just had to wear dark glasses out the house. And I put on loads of weight because I was, had to have steroids and 
miss a year of my life basically because I couldn't go to university. And I think it just sort of put things in perspective for me. It just made me realize what's important. I think I already knew it, but I just was like, I just, it just very simplified. Health is incredibly important when you've got it, you've got to embrace it. You know, mm. I'd spent a lot of my teenage years either on crutches with a bandage over my eye. And so therefore anything where that wasn't happening was pretty special. And also just that, you know, you can't waste your life. Don't, whatever you do, waste your life. And it just sort of put me on a trajectory of just like, right, come on. Did that realization propel you into drama school in Liverpool? Yeah, so I think I was going to university in Liverpool anyway. I'd got in, but I had to defer my place. And then I, you know, it's one of those things. And you, I made such great friends at university. I had the best time ever. Would I have if I'd gone the previous year? You know, all those sort of things. Fate takes a hand, if you want to call it fate. Basically, what happened was, and my sister hates this story, but in my heart, I was like, I really like drama like that's my lesson at school that I get really excited about so I was like maybe I'll just do like an acting course somewhere so I applied for a couple and my sister could drive because she's five years older than me so she took me around them and she was just saying she said because this is obviously we didn't know any actors we didn't know anyone who did anything like that she was like isn't it a bit late now though I was 18 um (laughs) she was like shouldn't you have gone to stage school or something I was like oh god yeah you're probably right we drove into this one place in Leeds in north of England and we drove past like a glass wall where you could see into where people were doing their drama lessons and everybody was on their hands and knees and leotards like roaring. And she went, you are not going here! And like drove me out. And I was like, yeah, it looks awful and terrifying. So I just sort of didn't have the, in my head it was like fame. Going would be going, I'm a big deal. Uh-huh. I think I'm a really big deal. And I'm going to drama school because I believe I should be a star. And I just could not. I was like, oh, I, I can't. I can't do that. So... Yeah, university was a warm-up act. And then in the third year, I got the bravery. It took me long enough to do some actual acting. And luckily, a teacher said, I think you should pursue this. And I hate that it took someone outside of myself to actually make me do that. There's something fascinating about the fact that at this age, after you leave Liverpool and attend a one-year postgraduate course at Oxford, that you decide... I'm going to choose a profession that is so predicated on your face. <laughs> yeah, although I, I, when I went to drama school, I was going to do theatre. You know, I had absolutely no aspiration or belief that I would be on telly or in films. Absolutely no way. Like, one of my best friends who I know from drama school laughs at me because we sat next to each other in the pub on the first night. She was like, so what do you think you'll do? Do you think you'll move to London after this? I was like, no, what? Like, why? What, to, to act? Oh, I probably won't start acting after this. Like, I just was in denial. I don't, I just didn't know how it worked. I didn't know that acting could be something other than what I had imagined it was in my head. Like, it could genuinely be something I invested time in and became professional at. And when I first started acting in telly, I was like, oh God, what are they going to say? Are they going to say that I'm one eye smaller than the other and I'm going to have to leave? <laughs> well, let's go to that first big piece on the telly. Telly. The BBC adaptation of Little Dorrit. It was there that the director, Derv LaWalsh. Big shout out, Derv LaWalsh. Gave you uh, some sage advice. She sure did. What was that? I remember in the audition, it was me and all the girls who, oh, now my contemporaries, we all basically have the same colour skin, eyes and hair. But I knew that they were all going up for it as well. And I was like, oh, God. And they were really doing really well. And I was like, that's not going to happen for me then. But Dervla, I remember one particular audition. I'd missed my train. 
I was late. I was really sweaty. She said, Claire, you need to know that the less you do, you need to, you know, what did she say? She said, do you want the words? Yes. What did she say? She says, everyone around you will be swinging off the chandeliers. Yes. That's what Dickens requires. But you're in the center of it. Don't do anything. Don't try to act. No chandeliers. Um, yeah, no chandeliers for me. And it was so helpful for me because I was like, oh, so what you're saying is I can not, I don't have to act. I can just feel, I feel, I can just feel and listen and be there in the room and it will be, all, I'll respond and it, that will be the right thing to, that happens. I think not acting is probably underselling a little bit of your talent in my view. Put it this way. If they put two cameras in here. Yeah. And they filmed both of us not acting. Yeah. One would be very compelling and it's not me. <laughs> now, I don't agree. I know you don't agree, but I know. What happens, I think, with film acting, and this is just my opinion and I don't know what I'm talking about, but is that you see a lot of ticks. People have a lot of behavioral ticks. Like in life, that's what we do. People look off to the side. You move your hands when you don't need to. People raise their eyebrows without realizing they're doing it. People purse, pout, purse their lips. Like there's all sorts of things that we all do that we do when we're uncomfortable. And it becomes part of who we are and that's what we do. And I think the issue is you have to remove all of those things to do film acting. You have to be totally present and totally there in the moment and not try and catch yourself from embarrassment. You have to literally go, here I am. And I'm not going to do anything until I need to. And that's not about not acting. It's about listening and being hopefully as truthful as possible and not putting anything on the text, not feeling like you need to do something to feel comfortable. You can just be there because the camera is so close to your face mm -hmm. and the audience sees everything you're thinking and doing. And if they don't, they will put that on you anyway. So it's not about sitting there and looking vacant, but it's about being alive and not putting yourself anywhere other than where you are at that moment. We'll be right back with actor Claire Foy. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, 
giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. So you take this no chandeliers approach. Chandelier. <laughs> you with the sound effects. Sorry, I can't help it. You take this after your first foray into the BBC. Yeah. Into your first movie here, Season of the Witch. You called the experience amazing, ludicrous, and completely frivolous. <laughs> as essentially the only woman on set, filming in Budapest with Nicolas Cage, living in a two-bedroom apartment by yourself. What did that window into this system reveal to you? This was pre the financial crash of 2008. I was somewhere for basically six months. The days never ended. There was just money to keep shooting. I wasn't, but people were flying on private jets because they couldn't decide what someone's haircut should be. We were up a mountain. The locations were insane. They built entire villages. In the period after, basically, that, the industry really wasn't like that at all. You know, we would be on set doing nothing all day long, riding horses, going for walks up mountains, like coming back. There was just, I've never done a job like it. And did you think, this is something I could do? No, I was just like, what is going on here? Who's organizing this? Who's in charge? I, you know, and lack I was, of decisions. Were, were lack being of decisions. Made. I was 23 and I was just like, wow, this is, come on, guys. Like someone needs to pull the finger out. Because it was also that period of time where people would turn up to work after having like one hour's sleep. I'm sure that kids do it now. And not saying that I was like that, but there isn't like the older generations of actors just like <laughs> coming in, coming into the hotel as you're leaving and then going, oh, I'm coming with you and then turning around and coming out in the car. You know, that sort of old, like old school, just fun. And it was a Nicolas Cage film. Do you know what I mean? He's notorious. And also he had lived a life which was in this world, the entire, you know, his whole family. And he would ask me things like, what do you do? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you do in your days? I was like, just go to the shops. <laughs> go and go to the pub. Um. This is the strangest impression. <laughs> it's, it doesn't even sound like him. I know it doesn't. But it does sound like something he would clear, say. Clear, clear. Oh, that was good. Yeah. Nice. He's, he's great. Absolutely great. But just, it was just, I was like, what is going on? What is my life? And very luckily, it wasn't my life. It very much was not your life. And, and, and despite how frivolous it all was, you mm. did carry onward and, and start to find, I think, the kind of work you wanted to make. Yes. I want to talk about the first day of shooting The Crown. Okay. I'm contractually obligated to ask you about The Crown. Otherwise, people are going to come <laughs> after me. I have nothing to ask you about The Queen. I don't even understand <laughs> why Americans are so obsessed with it. it it's, not my, it's not my business. I hear you, babes. I hear you. Babes, that's nice. That's right, babes. So on this first day... Mm-hmm. Walk me through what happens in that Land Rover. Oh, the Land Rover. 
where you're four months into having your daughter, Ivy. Mm -hmm. It's the first day of filming this big, momentous show. Of course, mm. you did not know it was going to be as big and momentous as no. it would be. No. What happens that day? Shit hits the fan, basically. So I got the job when I was five months pregnant. And I certainly was not at a stage or they wouldn't have given, they wouldn't have cared. You know, if I'd said, could I push it back a few months? They would have sort of found someone else to do the job. So I was already scared going into it. One, I just was like, I'd, I'd never had a baby before. I didn't know what I was going to, I didn't know if I was going to be alive. Like, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And I was dreading it. Like, there was absolutely no element of excitement. I was just dreading it. I was dreading being away from her. But they had said very, you know, they've been very supportive. They had said, you know, you can still feed her. This is going to be fine. But obviously, that first week was just a baptism of fire. They'd all said to me, like, we, we've never done this before, which is embarrassing for the industry, basically. But what ended up happening was I, I was obviously feeding her on a relative's, like, schedule. So I planned for when she could come to set. And then I was like, that'll be okay. I can do like three hours of not seeing her. I can feed her. She can stay. Yeah, you know, she's a baby. She was four months. It didn't matter if she was like in a Land Rover bouncing around for a bit or we were in a stately home and things like that. She'd be okay. And I could, and there's so much waiting around on film sets. I was like, I'll be able to spend actually quite a lot of time with her. I found that quite reassuring. So what happened was we got in this Land Rover at what, like eight o'clock in the morning and we started to climb up this mountain. And we kept climbing up the mountain for about 25 minutes. And I was like, um, how am I going to get down to feed my daughter? And they were like, well, no, we'll bring her up. They will keep going up. And it's like 45 minutes, basically, we get to like a summit of a mountain where there's like men hanging off the side of the mountain in case anyone falls off it accidentally. Like I was like, this, I can't be a baby here. And they were like, okay. So then I tried to pump breast milk and the pump didn't work. So the, I was in the back of the Land Rover and I didn't know what else to do. Like I was dying. My heart was literally being crushed inside myself. I hated myself because I'd made this decision to do this job. I know what my industry was like. I couldn't believe how naive I had been to think I could do it. And I just wanted to die on the side of the mountain. Or just I just wanted to leave and just go with, be with my baby, basically. So I cried a lot and then I called my agent. I was like, I just don't know what to say, but I just have to tell someone and I just feel like no one else can really listen. And so they were just really scared about me and my mental health. And then I got home that night at like eight o'clock. My baby was already in bed. She'd just been given formula all day and I just cried all night. That's basically what happened. And then I obviously had a lot of residual resentment about the situation I'd been in. But, though, you know, I think I get it. They were learning too. They didn't really know. And I think sometimes our industry is really interesting. It can be incredibly rigid because people believe that things have never been done before and therefore they can't be. Mm. And what I've learned from amazing producers like Dee Dee Gardner, for example, is she's like, nothing is impossible. And things like, for example, COVID has shown our industry is so adaptable. If you can get an entire crew and cast tested for COVID three times a week, everyone masked up and no one get COVID at the end of it, like what a logistical feat that is. And I just think that unfortunately people don't haven't been able to raise their voices and say, oh, this is what I need. And therefore no one's had to deal with stuff like that. You know, in looking back, these experiences feel like kind of prescriptive, like they they reveal the kind of projects you want to make, but also the conditions in which you want to make them. Yeah. And I want to square those two points, the characters and then the conditions. 
for the roles in the aftermath of The Crown, mm. you spoke beautifully on this in a 2019 speech accepting the See Her Award around the film First Man. Mm. Why don't we take a listen? Um, the greatest privilege of your life is to be who you are. And I've realized that that's all I have to offer um, is myself. And all I've ever tried to do with any, anything I've ever made and any work that I've been in is to hopefully make something which people recognize, that they recognize themselves on screen in some way, that they see a thought or a feeling or an emotion or a circumstance, and they can see themselves. And I've had the opportunity to play some extraordinary women uh, for all sorts of reasons, and none more so than Janet Armstrong. She lived her life with such bravery and resilience and determination and love. And I can't tell you how many times during the making of the movie and in the press tour that people said to me, well, that part is normally the part of just the wife. And there's no such thing as just the wife. And that's our job, I think. Our job is to question ourselves, to question what we depict, who we depict, and how we depict them, and how we want people to see themselves on screen or anywhere else in the media. It's been now three years since you gave that speech. Yeah. And I'm curious, with your work and women talking, how you're thinking about those questions now in this moment. Yeah, I think I'm very, very privileged and very fortunate to be in the position that I find myself and I am able to ask questions of the scripts and the characters that I'm being asked to play. And I always had those questions in my head or I always had those doubts and I would instead just ignore them and carry on. And I think a lot of people have done that. A lot of female actors have done that, which is where you go, this doesn't feel quite right. And then, you you know, the script has been written by a man and you're told that you're wrong when you're going, oh, I'm pretty sure that a woman wouldn't do that or pretty sure the character wouldn't behave in that way, but I don't want to seem like I'm a troublemaker, so I'll just shut up and do it. But I do think that we have a real, like, responsibility. I see it. I see it in children's programming, for example, like the things that my daughter watches and... She's taking that in. Someone said something about being a girl or just the fact that girls are all wearing a particular thing. And I have to say to her, like, no one looks like that. Just so you know, do any of the women that you know in your life look that way? No. So that's not what real people look like. It's like this really beautiful thing that Kate, one of the the younger actresses, Kate Hallett in Women Talking said, is that she believed that this is it in a nutshell, basically what she said. She said that I believed coming into this industry, I had to come to work on time, be good, go home, don't ask any questions, just do and just don't draw any attention to yourself. But I've realized that I can expect a lot from the people that I'm working for. And that's okay. And I think it's that thing, the expectation is sort of has to be the other way around. I think on the receiving end, you've always had to be grateful for a job. And I am grateful for a job. You've always had to be, do whatever you possibly can do to keep the job. If that means that someone comes into your trailer and says, you're going to have to do this scene naked. Um, you do it. Like, don't question it because there's 5,000 other people who want the job and they will remind you of that. But I just feel like I've seen a different way of making things with women talking. I've seen people prioritize the experience of making something as opposed to necessarily the outcome being at the detriment of everyone's experience and all the people who are making it. 
like, like their mental health. And that doesn't mean I think that everything's like birds tweeting around and da 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 da. Like, it just means that I do think that we can be a little bit more professional about our industry, the creative industry, while still being incredibly creative. I think it can be a safer place for everybody. You said that women talking could not have been made 10 years ago. No. Why do you think that is? What change has allowed a film like this to exist, created under the conditions in which it was created? I think it's got a lot to do with the women. So Frances McDormand and Dee Dee Gardner, who made it, are at a particular position in their career where, you know, they've got a lot of Oscars between them, where people would go, maybe they know what they're talking about. Like maybe their instincts are actually okay, as opposed to being two crazy women who want to make this film about women, which I think would have been the attitude a few years ago. I think the gravitas that they have and and the also just experience and wealth of knowledge and also genius creatives that they are have imbued in them a lot of trust. Like MGM, the studio, Orion, who financed the film, said, okay, we believe that what you will make will be what you want to make and what you want to make is what we want to put out there. And I just think that those things have only been ever given to male producers, writers, directors. And their belief in Sarah and their knowing that Sarah is the director that she is and the decisions and then who they've cast in it, it's all come from the kernel of there being these women in the industry who have worked for this amount of time who want to fight that corner. So as we leave, with what this film showed you about what this process could be, Mm. I think it seemed to offer a different approach, a different way of making something. Yeah. I want to sit with your desire to portray what you call the unobserved character. Mm. You have this quote, my favorite thing to do, and I don't know what this says about me, (laughs) is to portray the unobserved character in their home with the idea that the camera's not there and that person's just living their life and it's being filmed. That's my favorite thing to do with my time. What a dweeb. (laughs) I mean, I do like other things as well. (laughs) But professionally, I just love it. You can joke, but I have a sincere question. Okay, I'd love to hear it. To ask with this. (laughs) You can still make fun of this one too. No, I'm going to try and be really sincere also. Do you think this interest in the unobserved character is your way of paying homage to previous generations of your family? To specifically... Your Irish grandparents who came to London at the turn of the 20th century when the Irish were stigmatized, worked themselves endlessly, raised six kids in a two-up, two-down apartment, leading lives that were probably often unobserved, unexamined, in some way is acting your way of seeing them. Um, oh, I think there's two things. One, there's like a acting side of it. When I was at drama school, we did a lot of Stanislavski work. And that would mean living inside the character in a way that you... We'd do things like we'd bring our entire bedroom into school, into drum school, and then a whole afternoon would be... This must be to people who aren't actors must sound like hell on earth. And also, like, <laughs> uh, you're paying for this? And also, why would you do that with your time that's not working? And then we would have a time pressure... Um, it would often be going to get trained, doing something like that. And you'd have you'd watch someone in their room for 35 minutes. 
and you'd watch that person moving in apparently their space, doing all the things, you know, that, you know, the most committed drama students would like get naked or get change clothes or something like that. I wasn't going to do that. But I realized that I, that was my favorite thing to do was to be in the character's space, everything be real and just do it. Like just everything became real. It's like the most amazing exercise and immersion of of just living someone else's life, which I, as a complete, you know, I just, um, a complete nosy person, I just could eat it. I love it. And I love it when I go to set and the set designer has thought about everything and you can put things, I always mess up sets and put things in different places. Like I'm really irritating, but I just love it. And that's my favorite thing to do. And I love then the camera seeing that person in a way that we all want to see. We all want to see inside other people's houses. We love it that's what we want you're just so nosy and like that's what we want to see so I have that fascination with it in the same way that I think an audience does and there are always the things I'm most interested by but also yes I would say you are partly right in the sense that I don't come from a family of theatricals or people who invented a covid vaccine or wrote a novel or traveled to India or, you know, did things like that. I come from a family of people who work really, really fucking hard and they laughed, they cried, they lost, they lived their life. And a lot of people would think that was in a quiet way. And what I saw wasn't quiet. What I saw was life. And it was messy and dirty and bright and hilarious. And what I see of humanity is not glitz and glamour and, you know, a biography of someone who flew across the Atlantic, which is a great feat. But I'm interested in the small feats in life as a person that I am. That's just what I'm interested in. And this is not to say, I'm not saying that I all I want to do is really earnest, worthy things all the time. I want to do absolute nonsense as well. But I would love to read things where I recognise the people in them as people Maybe no one else wants to watch those films, so I'll just be left hanging. But um, I would, I love them. Well. Oh, have we come to the end? That ability to uh, see the small feats. Small feats. And in turn, probably see all of us. Stop it. I so thank you for doing that. How do you feel? I feel okay. I'm worried about what I've said, but I've been really honest. I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> Next time, completely scripted. Yeah, really guarded and frosty. <laughs> Claire Foy, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I've actually really enjoyed it. Actually? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked a lot. Next time, you can interview me. I'd love to. It's not going to happen. Why not? Come on. Safe travels. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks this week to Emma Jackson and the team at Tapestry London, Edward Chang at UA Releasing, Strategy PR, and of course, Claire Foy. Her new film, Women Talking, is now out in theaters across the country. To purchase tickets and to learn more about Claire's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Kate Blanchett, 
Eddie Redmayne, Jonathan Majors, Laura Dern, Tessa Thompson, Ethan Hawke, Pedro Pascal, and Matthew McConaughey. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang. Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paul. Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sander, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Ki Hui Kwan. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts.